Where do I start? How do I train recall? How long should we work on healing before moving on? Is crate training really that important? We hear these questions all the time and there's one answer that will help with all of them. The complete step-by-step dog training course found at Standing Stone Supply. They break down the what, when, where, and how to train your own dog from eight weeks to one year old. They've got it all laid out for you down to even the daily activity checklist to keep you and your puppy on track. Check out standingstonesupply.com and remember to use code GDIY to save 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. There's just nothing better when you're out there working with a buddy that you put time in their dog. They put time in your dog and you get out there and you see them nail it back and then you go up and shoot a bird and they just stand it down. You just, you know, that just wraps it up for you. You know, just nothing better. One thing we all love to do with our dogs is hit the road and go on new adventures. In order for that to happen, we have to be able to safely and efficiently travel with our dogs. Dakota 283 is dedicated to building unparalleled pet protection and tailgate lifestyle products for you and your best friends. Their one-piece roto-molded kennels have many options such as the Hero Series for military-grade crates, T1 low-profile kennels that will fit truck beds with tonneau covers, and their most popular G3 Series that's available in any size you'll need. Dakota not only offers many different sizes and styles of kennels, they also offer products and accessories to help with food and water transport, truck bed storage, and even grooming stations. Have a new puppy and only want to buy one kennel instead of buying multiple ones as they grow? Look at the Forever Kennel Insert Divider that gives you the ability to buy a kennel now and adjust the size inside as needed. No matter what you need to get you on your next adventure with your dog, Dakota has it for you. Check them out now at Dakota283.com. Your new 283 lifestyle is just one click and free shipping away. We are back with another week of GDIY, everybody. Joe is back with us. Joe, how's it going? Oh, man. I missed everybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, glad to have you back. You know, I know you uh, you went through some crap that uh, life throws your way, but uh, glad to have you back and where you belong in the GDIY intro serenading everybody with your smooth velvety tones <laughs> feels good to be back in the gdiy studio the the <laughs> gdiy virtual studio yep well uh i'm excited this week because we actually have a topic uh that i've been wanting to cover for a long while it's one of the most requested ones questions how do i do this and uh it's also one of my favorite things in the in the hunting dog world when you actually get to see a good reliable dog back another dog and so we're talking about backing and honoring with Daryl Pernott. 
uh, out of Seattle, Washington. So he actually came recommended from Michael Gill, who is a uh, GDIY profile alum. Shout out to Michael. Appreciate it. But, uh, Joe, what do you think about, about the topic, backing and honoring? Well, this is the one thing that my dog does well. <laughs> that's, that's why I threw it to you. I knew that you were going to be like, this is my time to shine. <laughs> exactly, yeah. This is the one thing that Jack uh, can do. And honestly, if you're talking about um, hunting as a, as a social thing, it's probably the most important because um, you don't want to be the guy who has a dog who is blowing cubbies and, and taking away bird opportunities for your buddies. Um, just having a dog that backs and, and honors, um, whatever way you want to say it, um, just makes the day a lot more fun. Yeah. And, and I can honestly say, so the, uh, the backing of these dogs is actually, it was the final note that it took my wife to, uh, be able to say, yes, we're getting a dog (laughs) because we went up there (laughs) to visit Jeremiah up in West Virginia and look at these dogs. And she's like, that's cool. That's cool. You know, just seeing the dogs work. But then he put down three dogs in the field and one went on point. The other one slammed that and the other one slammed that. It's like, boom, boom, boom. And she goes, that was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. We we're getting a dog. I'm like, there we go. Got it. So, uh, it, it, it really is one of my favorite things. So I'm glad to, that Daryl took his time to uh, explain the how-to and uh, really break it down because I know that this is a topic that uh, comes up a lot, especially when people are preparing for certain AKC tests and NAVDA tests and um, shoot-to-retrieve. You know, Daryl does all of that, so he's speaking from experience and uh, so a lot of good information. So, you know, you guys give it a listen and let us know what you think. Yeah, for sure. Well, Nick, I've got a, uh, uh, a this week's review hit it now i'm gonna need a little i'm gonna need a little bit of time because it's a long one (laughs) okay send it um the uh subject for the review is great content Um, i'm going to um it's shellac shellac 78 or it could be shelly k 78 i'm going to actually go with shelly k or shell k because the k is capitalized in this review all right but here we go it's one of my favorite podcasts. That it? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Agreed. Short and sweet. I'll, I'll take it. I love it. I like that review, man. Short and sweet and uh, easy easy to read for Joe. Very easy because, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got Florida public school education. It's not a – reading is not my strong point. Yeah. So what did you say? It was Shelly K or Rochelle K? Shell K? Shell, uh, I mean – Shell, yeah, I'm Shell K. We'll go with Shell K78. Well, hit us up, give us your information. I'll shoot you a sticker in the mail. I'm uh, actually got two other people that have been waiting patiently for stickers. I'm I'm kind of behind on that. I've been a little busy the past few weeks, but uh, so yeah. If I told you I'm getting you a sticker, you're getting a sticker. But uh, Shelly K. Hit us up. We'll get you one. And uh, Joe, I got I got a tip of the week, but also got a couple caveats on uh, an episode that me and you did a few weeks ago that I've been waiting to share for when you're able to come back on. Oh, let's hear it. So the cost of the dog, you know, we got we got good feedback from other people that we pretty much hit, you know, everything, all, all the basic stuff. But one person did say that uh, something that is common for uh, uh, most people, especially kind of listening to this podcast and in this world, is uh, be sure to account for 
test fees and registration fees and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. And, uh, you know, they just threw an arbitrary, depending on which circuit you're in, how much you do, you know, just throw 500 bucks at that. You know, it's like, all right, 150 bucks or so for an NA test, utility test, and then add a, add a little bit more for the invitational, which is a little bit more expensive. But, you know, it's then you doing registration fees for uh shoot to retrieve trials so just keep that in mind if you're going to play the game that uh every time you, you know these fees and uh or the, these events aren't free so that that was a good one that i you know we should have caught on the episode i think yeah but then you get into the rabbit hole of hotel rooms and extra <laughs> gas and <laughs> truck camp man just never stops exactly it, it yeah. never stops you can get you can drill this down but we had a lot of good feedback or at least some feedback from that episode a lot of people weren't too happy with the total number but uh you know i did a few people did say that it, it helped them kind of come to terms with it so what whatever that's worth they're still getting a dog so i'm glad it didn't scare them off of it but um the tip of the week also stems from this episode joe and it was actually directed towards you oh towards me yes towards wow. you so you remember in the episode uh when we were talking about flea and tick medication and we started talking about your bougie setup for your uh, flea and tick medication, um, the I, more natural approach as opposed yeah. to the normal chemicals and companies and so on and so forth. Uh, after the episode, Brian Mastonen via Patreon hit us up and uh, said that he also does a more natural flea and tick prevention and he thought he would pass it on to you and the listeners he's been using what's called cedar side for about 15 years now after his lab had a reaction to frontline and it works awesome if you stay up on it he even used it to get rid of a flea infestation on his other cats and dogs at the house so there is a natural solution for you and anybody else that may be interested in the more natural approach to flea and tick medication that uh, you know has at least one good review and uh been using it for 15 years so it's got to work right cedar side does it say where he's from it does not no i i would say i I would uh if he was like from wisconsin or minnesota i would probably take a little bit more but but if if he's like in florida then you know well probably doesn't work that maybe it's time for you to (laughs) maybe it's time for you to check that out and give it a shot and uh let us know how it compares to your other natural uh, i'm down remedies yeah. The uh, the fleas in my area were awful last year, so it uh, looks like I need to be doing an Amazon search of some cedar side. There you go, man. So there you go, GDIY community helping everybody out. Helping out, that's what it's all na- about. Coming at you with the natural uh, solutions for our problems. But uh, Joe, you got anything else? Did we miss anything? I don't think so. I just looked at the reviews, though, still, and we're at 264, so it really appreciate you guys. Huh? We got to hit 300. Now we got to hit 300. The, it's just, the bar keeps on I, getting bigger I, and bigger. I want to hit 300 by Wednesday. Whoa. <laughs> this episode comes out on Tuesday. I want 300 by, by Wednesday. If Let's you really like GDIY, you'll come through. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I mean, it's it's only taken like a couple months to get 15. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate it again. Check us out at uh, Patreon if you're interested. Um, I did have a, a uh, buddy uh mentioned to me that he bought two dakota kennels recently and he did not use our promo code because apparently he doesn't listen to us well enough so uh andrew use that gdiy 10 promo code for 10 percent off if you're a patreon member you get even more so uh be sure to do that hit us up on facebook and instagram um patreon.com forward slash gundogger yourself 
and i don't think there's anything else so joe without further ado i think we uh we get to the episode cool enjoy it guys we get asked all the time what the most important thing to consider is when training and living with a hunting dog and they're often surprised when they hear us answer with proper nutrition it's pretty obvious when you think about it though it doesn't matter how well the dog is trained if it doesn't have the right fuel the saying garbage in garbage out rings true in dog nutrition you premium performance lineup goes beyond just protein and fat with a number of different formulas designed to fuel your dog's specific activity level while supporting their recovery and optimizing their nutrient delivery. The proof is in the pudding, or lack thereof, when you make the switch to Yukonuba. You'll see immediate results in your dog's energy level and drive. They have a formula for every type of dog from your hardest working dog in the field to your laziest retired dog on the couch. Head on over to yukanubasportingdog.com to find the right formula for your hunting partner. Make the switch today and let Yukonuba fuel your dog so you can focus on what you and your dog actually love to do, work. Picture this, you just finished a long day's hunt or a long day in the training field grooming your next champion. You've run through your entire string of dogs in anticipation for the next fall. You think the day's over. It's not though. Your day's not over until you let that ugly dog hunt. No hunting or training session is complete without capping it off with one of the spirits from Ugly Dog Distillery. They're Michigan raised and purebred handcrafted spirits. They have everything you need from vodka and gin to your more traditional after hunt choice Kentucky bourbon. Head on over to UglyDogDistillery.com to check availability within your state. And if you have an upcoming event that's alcohol friendly, then be sure to reach out to us and see if we can add another Ugly Dog to the lineup. We'll tell you right now, we aren't much on flavored whiskeys, but you have to try their peanut butter whiskey. Unlike other peanut butter whiskeys out there, Ugly Dogs is made with real Kentucky bourbon and not just grain alcohol with syrup. So after your next hunt or a long day of testing and you're trying to decide what to drink, reach for the bottle with Ruger, the German wire hair pointer on it. It was handcrafted by people just like us, dog people. Every adventure starts somewhere. Make sure yours includes an ugly dog at your side. Explore responsibly. All right, we are joined this week by Daryl Pernat. He is the world-renowned expert on backing and honoring in these upland dogs. Daryl, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, doing well. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So I'm excited to talk to you about this because this is, I've said it before on this podcast a number of times, it is, uh, it's one of my favorite things in the dog world is when you have a good quality dog that backs and honors other dogs points. And, you know, we'll also touch on a little difference on, you know, the backing in the field as opposed to honoring on retrieves and so on and so forth. But it, like when you really see a, a dog that is good at it and, and well trained up on it and consistent, it's, it's really impressive, especially when you get a, in a field with three, four, five dogs all doing it. it. It, to me, it's one of the coolest things in the upland world. Yeah. You know, the, the, for me, when I'm chucker hunting and I see dogs really hold, you know, nail it back from, you know, anywhere to from 50 to a hundred plus yards. It, it's just a stunning thing. It kind of makes your heart pitter patter. It's, you know, something that I think of as a classic thing in the pointing dog world. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I just think it's one of the more exciting things out there. Absolutely. So before we jump into that, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell everybody a little bit about your experience, you know, what you do with dogs and, and just, you know, how you came to, uh, to really feel comfortable in training, backing and honoring. Okay. Well, you know, I, I started uh, with pointing dogs probably 20 some years ago. Started with a wire hair beach and got into poodle pointers. Now I have a poodle pointer and uh, 
uh, short hairs and, uh, you know, started to really push dogs in the NAVDA system, you know, and, and, you know, during that time, you know, you have a lot of people that are pushing their dogs and you start to see these dogs performing at high levels. And then you realize what they can do, you know, when you start hunting, you know, wild birds. And then watching some of the advanced training with the AKC, because backing kind of enters that earlier, and you start to see these dogs back and you just realize you want your dog to do that. And then for me, I primarily now hunt chuckers and hunts and, you know, that big open country, you do want your dog to range out, you know, 200 plus yards, um, anywhere between 200 to 700 yards. But when dogs are ranging like that, if they don't back, particularly on cubby birds, they just blow up. So for me, I, you know, as I transition to, you know, hunting chuckers, you want, you know, with NABDA, you meet so many people, you want to hunt with them. And when you're hunting with other people, it's almost critical when you're hunting cubby birds to have dogs that honor. So, you know, start to do do that. And then really, um, I'm pretty heavily involved in NABDA and AKC hunt tests. So, you know, I've got one dog that uh, is a VC. I'm going to Invitational again this year. Both dogs are advanced masters there. Um, just wonderful, wonderful hunt test dogs too in there. Yeah. And then I do field trials with the short hair and he's, he's on his way to his FC and uh, AFC. And then uh, I dabble a little bit in Nastra. So I, you know, out of the, what I call the big four, I try to participate in those and all of those require backing at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of have your hand in yeah. all the different, the different pots that require it as far as testing and, and just, just competition and all that. So you, you kind of touched about how critical it is that when you, when you're in the hunting field and you have multiple dogs, like why it's so important to have dogs, uh, backing touch on that a little bit more. Like, why is it such an important thing in the field? You know, that there's other than when it's required in a test, obviously it's like, well, I want to pass the test talk to about a hunting standpoint, you know, a lot of people, they may not understand if they've never hunted with multiple dogs in the field, that there is an actual purpose other than it's a pretty damn cool thing to see. Yeah. I mean, you know, outside of the cool thing to see, for me, it kind of just makes sense when you're hunting multiple dogs. I think, you know, there's an etiquette piece when you're running a brace with other dogs and no one really appreciate when, you know, when their dog's on point and another dog comes in, you know, gets in front, either steals the point or flushes the bird because it's blowing by the dog on point. And, you know, you're not getting those birds at that point because they're flush. And then usually that's going to bring on a chase and those dogs may be off to the races. Um, you know, and that also, when a dog doesn't back and you have a dog that's really steady on birds and pointing birds, it's going to bring out competition out of that dog that's getting points. And as yeah some point what you're going to do is see your training and the other dog's training really unwind and you're probably going to have somewhere during that day both dogs flushing birds because they're going to start to compete um outside of that i mean i think it's a safety issue you know chuckers you know up here fly down and so you know if a dog's you know not really backing and they're really not steady they're going to go in and there's you know there's that safety piece where they could get in front of you because you're not watching behind you um so there's that little safety piece on the backing and kind of that's a steadiness piece too. Um, and then the other thing, and, and, and I call kind of the honoring, you know, really, you know, through the wing shot and fall, it prevents a dog fight when those dogs go in for that bird. Um, so to me, it's really going to prevent you from flushing birds. That's probably the biggie, you know, and, and I think every time I go with a dog that really isn't backing or doesn't know how to back, 
inevitably, I'd say more than 50% of birds at times get bumped. And mm. it just, it makes, it can make a long day out there. You know, yeah. um, if you're out there for a four hour day and you don't get opportunities on birds, you kind of come back a little downhearted. Now, typically I'm pretty good with that because I understand where other dogs are and mine are really steady dogs, but you can see that training on, you know, becoming a little looser on your dogs, even if they are steady. Absolutely. So, I guess, I mean, really, you always have to kind of start with this to some extent on everything. You know, the definition that, of what the word actually is. You know, let's explain what is the difference between backing and what people call honoring. You know, because there is a difference depending on if you're, you're talking about upland as well as retrievers and so on and so forth. So, you know, kind of give a brief definition of backing versus honoring. You know, for me, backing is actually, it doesn't involve scent. It is, you know, strictly the dog going on, you know, point when it sees another dog pointing, you know, so scent isn't involved. And it's really when the dog looks up, sees it, he stops instantly and, and, and should even be staunch or intense during that piece. And it's really showing respect for the dog pointing. To me, honoring is everything after that, you know, as you're going in to flush the bird, you know, the bird flushes, you know, you take your shot at Lance. That part of the backer dog, just honoring that other dog and not breaking and charging in. And when I hunt, I, both my dogs are steady to wing shot and fall. So in that sequence, then, you know, both those dogs are standing. So that part is the honoring piece. So that dog doesn't try to, you know, steal that retrieve or break on the, on the flush or the shot. And so that's how I differentiate those. Sometimes they are used universally. You know, if you go into some hunting, hunting books, it may actually say honoring, not backing. But how I break it up is the backing is just point, a sight point on another dog. And then the honoring is everything after. Gotcha. So besides pointing, you know, we've already touched on that. There is also considered the same thing in the retriever world where there's a, a duck usually, um, and you have multiple dogs out there and that's called honoring the retrieve, right? You know, is it, there's really no, no difference. I mean, you don't have a point on, or dog on point, but it's still kind of the same thing. The dog has to remain steady while another dog performs a task, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think in the retriever world, they either sit or stand, you know, as long as it's not advancing is, is the big piece. And so, you know, to me, that's, that's kind of that piece in the retriever world that does overlay. Cause even for those dogs, if they start to, you know, charge in, even though they're flushing dogs, you probably could have a, you know, a pretty good dog fight out there. And usually even with a flushing dog, you want them to, you know, stop on the flush of the bird. Yeah. You know, so if it's a low flying bird, you're not going to hit that dog. So it, they're really similar, I think, conceptually. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, you know, <laughs> you, you hear this a lot, uh, in this world, when somebody starts talking, I need to teach my dog to, to back or honor, uh, somebody, there's always somebody in a group that are like, well, my dog naturally backs, you know, good breeding program. They should produce natural backers. I mean, it's like, I guess you could really say that about everything. A good breeding program produces everything natural, but that's, that's not the case. But in your experience over the years and, and really looking into this, you know, just cover the the different ratio or your opinions on natural backers versus the dogs you have to actually train to back. Is there kind of a difference in their genetic makeup or drive versus cooperation? What's your opinion on that? You, You know, I, you know, there are times I see young dogs and particularly, you know, I think you can really develop backing in young dogs. If you you're aware of what you're looking for, 
But, you know, a lot of times those are flashbacks. You know, there's not really the steadiness afterwards. There's usually no honoring. But I do think, you know, young pups, you know, you know when you see a mom, you know, a pup with her pups, you know, lock up on a bird maybe in the dark, you can see all those little pups, you know, go on point, you know, and that, and I've yeah. seen that a number of times. You know, if you develop that at a young age, you know, there, there was a point where um, I was preparing for the invitational and my dog, you know, my short hair was already two years old. And when I was talking to Clyde Better, he goes, you just got to start that earlier, Daryl. If you start that earlier, it's easier. And so I look at that, you know, there are dogs that have that natural back. You know, I think it's that initial stop. But I think you've just got to encourage that. And the more you kind of, you know, as you, you know, some of your your other episodes talk about steadiness and whoa, you know, if you can start overlaying that whoa when a dog does a natural back, I think you can really enhance it. It's kind of like a puppy on pointing, right? They'll yep. point, but you start to develop it on more, you know, bird contact. So I do think that does happen. I think it's rare. You know, I think uh, there are a lot of people, you know, and I, I, I'm probably guilty of it too, where you get your dog out there, it stops when all of a sudden it sees another dog, but is it really backing? You know, it may be, it may not. You know, it stopped and, you know, recognize something in that situation. But I'd say most dogs probably don't naturally back or it's just not developed early enough to really, you know, be a back. Um, and, and, you know, I think the older dogs get, the more difficult it is, because if they've hunted a couple seasons, backing is something that is a little bit of a challenge for dogs, because most dogs want to point. Most right. dogs want to get the bird. So kind of the older they get, it makes it a little more challenging, where a lot of times they may avoid some backs as you're trying to work on the training. So you just got to be, you know, in tune to that. But And I think there are breeds that I think maybe are a little more natural at backing than others. Um, and, and breeding is a big piece, you know. If you're buying, you know, dogs with really good pedigrees that have really been tested, you know, that's showing those dogs are biddable. It's probably showing, you know, their trainability and, and their hunting ability. So if you're buying, you know, good dogs and, you know, I think any dog that's tested either thoroughly in NAVDA or AKC, you know, those dogs can take that pressure and take the training. They've pro proven it. And I think more of those dogs probably are going to be easier to get them to develop in the backing process. But like everything. I do think you can teach it and if you just break it down to good component parts and have a good, strong foundation, even a dog that's, you know, older or stubborn on it, you can get them to back reliably. Yeah. And you just, you just define dog training, essentially, just, just break it down into good manageable <laughs> steps and it's uh, all right. End of podcast. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> So, all right, you, you, you just said it a, a number of different ways. It's start early, lay that foundation, plant that seeds from an early stage. And, and we really preach that from here on out to where it's just like you're, you're training backing without directly training backing, right? You're, you're kind of overlaying what the dog already knows to just stand for whatever. If you overlay the woe, if, you know, if you're on a check cord, if you use a check cord, you know, it's pretty easy to do a lot of that stuff, but so that's from a very early on stage, but is there a general timeline that you like to do like actual backing training? Like you're going in the field with the intent to either brace work or we're going to talk about your method here in a little while. If you use the, the silhouette, whatever you do, what, when do we start training directly on the backing piece other than just planting the seed early on? You know, for me, there are some prerequisite things, you know, and I think there are a lot of different ways to do backing. You know, there, you know, I, I tend to sometimes combine backing with steadiness, but I think 
that's because I'm so used to seeing dogs and I know when to intervene. Yeah. But usually if I'm helping people in the NAVD group or with AKC stuff, it is taught, you know, after you really have a good whoa, you know, your dog, whether, you know, I do a whistle whoa, so I don't say anything, but I toot a whistle yeah. and my dog will stop anywhere out in the field. You know, same thing. Your dog should have a good solid foundation on whoa. I also like to see a dog that's steady. You know, if you've got a dog that, you know, you can woe and it's going to be steady where you can, you know, have birds, you know, flush or bounce around it. Those, those two elements of a woe and a steady really make that training uh, easier. So, it, you know, and I think what age do I start? I start pretty early. Like I, I have my poodle pointer that I have and he was really backing at eight months old. And part of it was out of necessity. I didn't have another dog to use as a, a backing dog when I was training for, you know, for the invitation with the short hair. So I really start working on him early. And I would say now he's probably the best backing dog I've ever seen. You know, he'll stab a back at 150 yards because he's been doing it from such a young age. And I think he's more consistent actually than my short hair. Yeah. Um, I don't know if most people are going to start that early because I think, as you know, the amount of time you put in your dog is, and if you break it down slowly, I, I kind of believe going slow, having a good foundation actually moves you along faster because you don't have to take so many steps backwards. But I train, you know, five to six days a week and I'm out, you know, I'd say every night I go out, I'm at least with one or two other people. And usually backing is one of the things we're working on. And so some of the dogs are, you know, under a year old, you know, and some of the dogs are two to three years old. So it's hard for me to say when, but I do think the prerequisites skills of having a good solid low and a steady dog definitely move that process ahead a lot faster once you start getting into it. And I actually think dogs, if they have that, the backing process is fairly straightforward and most dogs can learn it in two to three weeks and do it, you know, really consistently after three weeks if you're dedicated to getting out there and you're consistent in your training. Right. Now, I mean, once again, you're just, you're just kind of summing up this whole dog training thing, a good foundation, build off a good foundation, oh. you know, <laughs> it's a, it, so you're really just speaking a lot of truth on this stuff, but I want to get your take on, you know, in my, in my experience so far in talking to a lot of people in NABDA, you, you kind of have so far, you have the people that we already discussed natural backers, right? It was really easy. They mm-hmm. just kind of caught on and they just kind of grew off of it. Then you have the other camp to where it's kind of like they almost avoid addressing it until after the utility test. And then it's like, crap, I have an invitational test to get ready for. Now I got to figure out how to do this. But, you know, clearly we already covered that you want to start laying that foundation and and planting the seeds earlier. But is there like, is there an overall drawback? Like, is it, is it one of those that, you're really shooting yourself in the foot if you wait to address that after you complete steadiness solo for the utility field, or are you kind of in the camp that it's really steadiness is steadiness, even if you're working steadiness for utility, go ahead and start doing that brace work in the utility prep on the steadiness piece. Oh, I start way before the utility. And and that's a lot of that, you know, you know, we all learn in this dog training thing, you know, we learn from every dog we get. And I think, you know, when I had my short hair, and I started working on backing after the utility test, it was more challenging. Yeah. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to trade with some really great folks that have, you know, helped me kind of think about that differently. You know, backing in AKC is a mid-level thing. It's in the senior hunt area. And so before I do a utility test, I usually want dogs backing because, you know, a dog that can be steady with another dog, whether it's, you know, the one pointing or the one backing, 
is a dog that when you take that utility test, you don't even worry about the steadiness because they're always more competitive with another dog. So when they're out there by themselves in the utility test, I think if you've done backing before the utility test, you're going to be golden on the, on the field work piece because yeah. if your dog is steady with another dog, it's really going to smoke that test when it's running by itself. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I, I tend to uh, do that before the utility test, but I do think after it, what it does is that dog's had a lot of bird exposure and it likes pointing and it should like pointing. Every dog should like pointing. And what happens usually in there when you start training the backing process is kind of like what you had mentioned. There are times where, you know, the dog will come in and maybe you've been being taught some of the skills. And, and I would say anytime you're working with an older dog, even though you may have laid all the foundation for the backing, when you finally put him into that brace situation, a lot of times you'll see that dog approach that dog on point. And all of a sudden take a little turn and then you realize that dog won't even go by that dog on point. Mm -hmm. And so that's what you just have to work through. And that tends to happen when you train backing later on. And that kind of is one of those things that that dog will avoid. And then you'll get it back on track where it's back. And then all of a sudden it'll come back and kind of, you know, blow, blow it back again. And, and so I think, you know, the older the dog is, and I think the average, you know, passing age for the utility test is 3.8 years of age. So if you think of a 3.8 you know, years of age dog as a utility dog, think of them teaching that dog backing at really three and a half years of age. You know, that, that's, you know, that's way down there where yeah. most dogs really should be backing, I think, at least under the age of two, if not even really about a year and a half. And, and so I just think it's a little harder because, you know, a lot of these dogs, particularly now dogs, have a lot of prey drive. Yeah. And they're a little competitive to begin with. So the later you approach it, I think it just creates more challenges. Again, you can do it, but you may need to put a little more pressure on your dog. You may need to do more repetitions. And again, you just have to have a solid foundation. Your foundation is just like a house. You know, yeah. if you don't have a good foundation with a woe, a recall, a heel, and steadiness and primarily steadiness work, then you've got a pretty shaky house. And then, you know, that makes any of the backing or honoring just a little bit more of a challenge and it'll take you more time. You know, yep. to me, people who get lay down that foundation actually speeds up everything. And, you know, I think people are always, you know, and I, you know, my guess is you see it a lot too, when you're with training groups, people are always trying to jump up to that next level mm -hmm. and they may get a level above or a level above, but all of a sudden if that house isn't, you know, if that foundation isn't set, things start to crumble. Now they may get there by just sheer repetition, but it's going to take long because that foundation wasn't set. Yeah. Yep. Well, let's alleviate some of the concern from those guys that have the four or five year old dog and they're just starting and they're like, crap, you know, now I got to trade in my dog and go get a younger dog. That's not the case. Daryl's here. He's going to talk us through and, and how we're going to train these dogs to back. But Let's go ahead. Let's get the equipment list going. You know, what, what do we need going into this form of training and have prepared so that when we, you know, then we can go into the method. What does everybody need to actually have? Yeah. So, you know, for me, one of them, I, I like to have silhouettes of pointing dogs. So really it's a cutout dog of a dog on point. And I try to actually get different designs and I, I draw them out on plywood and I cut them out. And basically I paint them. And usually what I'll do is start with a silhouette dog that is white and black. It's something that really pops, you know, I make sure yeah. white's on there. So it's really easy for a dog to see it, but I usually get three to four 
silhouette and I actually kind of change the colors on them. You know, I'll paint one side white, one side maybe brown, do a gray like a Weimaraner, do one that might be all light like a, you know, white like a Spinoni. You know, so I want them to see different pictures when I'm, I'm building into it. So silhouettes are one. Then I have launchers, I think, you know, really help you out quite a bit. Um, and then I, I, I use a lot of homing pigeons. I probably have 60 homing pigeons at my house that I use for a lot of dog training. Homing pigeons are great because they fly away every time. You know, they don't land. They don't tempt the dog to break. They, they go. So homing pigeons are another uh, piece of equipment I use. And then, you know, obviously an e-collar. And then I, I like to use a woe strap and then a, a long lead or a long leash is, is the other piece of equipment. And every once in a while on a dog that might not be as steady when, when you start popping some birds, I may put a, a pinch collar where they self-correct. All right. So, yeah. So your, your equipment list is pretty similar to a lot of people that I've talked to, you know, silhouette launchers, homers, e-collar, woe strap. And there's, there's a lot of stuff there. Uh, we're going to go through, through your, your method and your steps on how to do this. And, uh, you know, for people listening out there, like we we talk about all the time, there's a bunch of different methods to do this, but this is how Daryl does it with the equipment he just listed. And, uh, but Daryl, I am going to ask you before we get off of here for alternative methods, okay? Like ideas of, that you may be familiar with that other people can check out because, you know, especially like, you know, stuff like homers and, and launchers and stuff. Not everybody has that. But let's talk about the Daryl method right now. Where do we start? We have all the equipment ready to go. Where do we start with this dog and what's step one? You know, for me, step one is always in the backyard. I mean, you know, um, I know people always want to get out to the training field, but I do a lot in the backyard. So typically, you know, it really depends how I teach heel and woe with a woe strap. So woe strap is really a, a small lead that goes from the neck and really around the waist and basically it's like a handle on your dog. So as I'm starting the process, this is how it also, you know, really worked on teaching the woe command. Now, when I start, I actually start with a stop to flush. So where I'm going in the backing process is I actually do a stop to flush drill, which is I'm, I'm going to throw that bird. So, you know, as I've taught the woe training, I'll heal and I'll say, well, and the dog will stop. And I still have that woe strap on them. So I'm repeating the same things in my foundational skills of how I taught woe. So that, so it lays over a little better. So as I'm walking with my dog, he's right by my side, I'll say, whoa, and then I'll throw a homing pigeon directly in front and the dog should be steady. And what I'm trying to do is just overlay that well with the bird flushing. And really what I'm trying to do is the flushing bird really is becoming the woe command right. is what is really the goal of what I'm trying to make the connection to. So in my backyard, what I'm doing is really similar to when I taught woe as, as initial stages. I'm healing the dog, throw that bird. But if the dog does lunge forward, I just pick him up, put him right back gently where he's at. And then typically I'll throw another bird once I replace him. So, you know, the nice thing about homing pigeons, you can have that bird bag, three or four <laughs> birds in there. And, and it's just like your steadiness training at that point, right? You know, where you'll throw birds around the yard, you'll throw it towards the dog, over the dog, and you just want that dog to stand down. But yeah. now all you're trying to do is the connection of when that bird, you know, flushes or you throw it, you'll overlay it with a woe command. And, and they make that connection pretty quickly if you have that foundation. And if they're steady, they shouldn't charge either way because they've heard that woe command. And then what I'll gradually start to move towards 
is, you know, when you start training something, once you start saying, whoa, your dog should, well, and when you throw the bird, it should be steady. Then again, what I'll start to do when I see the dog anticipating, I'll throw the bird first and I'll probably say, whoa, but, but if the dog stops on the bird as it, as you toss it in front of it, it's making that connection right. and you have that woe strap. So if it needs a little correction, you can, and usually that correction is really minor. You're just putting it back up and overlaying again with the woe command. So for me, that's that kind of initial step. And what you're going to do is use this flushing sequence of, you know, when a dog is steadied flush later, you know, later in the backing. And then what I'll start to do after I, you know, have the dog by my side and it's really being consistent and I can flush birds and it's stopping when it's by my side, I then transition to a longer lead, have the dog in front and I'll, you know, throw a bird. And I always go back to overlaying with the voice command. I'll say, whoa, first the dog should whoa, because we've taught that. And then I'll throw the bird. And I'm just trying to make that, you know, connection now that when the dog's not at my side, so I go in really baby steps and now it's on that log lead, you know, I'll say, whoa, he'll stop. I'll th throw the bird. And when I actually throw the bird, I don't throw it in the air. I actually throw it to the ground. So when the bird comes up, it resembles a wild flush. Yeah. And that's a little, little bit of a nuanced thing. But every time I release a bird, I'm always kind of pitching it more down towards the ground. So it kind of flushes up. Yeah. And so I'm just trying to build that connection of a wild flush with it too. Which you'll see as I kind of move forward, how that plays in there. And then basically, once the dog is really demonstrating, you know, on a longer lead that it's going to stop and I'll, you know, say the whoa command first, and then I'll start throwing the bird. And if it does stop right away, I'll say whoa after I throw the bird. But usually the dog starts to make that connection pretty quickly if you've yeah. done a good job on your foundation with whoa and steadiness. And then once that dog on the long lead is doing that, I really take it off the lead. But it has to be 100% reliable, you know, on that lead. When you throw the bird, it's already stopping. Yeah. And then at that point, in my yard again, I'll, I'll move to it off lead and I'll do the same thing. I'll kind of go back where I'll toss a bird. I'll say, whoa, before I toss the bird, the dog should stop. And it's just building that connection. Yeah. Um, and then even in that yard, I'll just kind of let it get further out and I'll start to throw birds. White homers, if you can get them, are absolutely golden in this because they really pop for the dog. It's right. hard for a dog not to see white and it just creates a contrast. But in that yard, you know, I'm just continually working on that. But the moment I go back into the field with it to train the dog, I actually go back to where it's on a lead. I don't usually go back to where it's on the woe strap, but I'll go back to it on a long lead because it's a new environment. So I always take a little step back when I go back into the training field. A little so that I'm 100%. Yeah, just, you know, go back a smidge. And if you do that, the dog gets the expectation better, and I think it learns it. And And my goal is for my dog not to make mistakes. If my dog's making mistakes, you know, we all want mistakes to a degree to get a correction. Yeah. But if they're, if they're not ready, if I'm pushing too fast, they're going to make more mistakes. And that's usually what frustrates people, and usually you just got to back up. So what I do when I go back up there, I automatically back up. And so for me, I'll go back to it on the lead, and I'll repeat the same thing I did in the yard. I'll Say the woe command first, you know, I'll throw the bird. Usually it's going to stop. Then I'll, you know, and I'll move through it a little faster, you know, where, you know, if it, if it's perfect on that one, I might throw the bird and just see, you know, and I don't like the let's see method of training, but <laughs> yeah. there's always that point where you're going to do it, right? <laughs> so you have one. to really see, but, <laughs> but before the let's see method of training, I'm 90% sure my dog's going to stop. Right. And that a lot yeah. of that is just watching your dog, knowing, do I think the readiness is there? 
And so, you know, for me, that's that next step. And if once they get that in the field, then I quickly move on to, you know, where that dog is out there, you know, and I start with the dog close in proximity because, you know, the closer the dog is, your presence is pressure. So I'll, you know, again, do the same thing where I might say, whoa, right away, throw the bird as he's free ranging off a lead, you know, have him stop the bird to fly away, you know, get in there, praise the dog. That's always really important. So they know they're doing the right thing. And then, you know, I'll let the dog range out a little bit more and so, I'll throw that bird. So, so, so much of that just, it, it, it makes so much sense because, you know, number one, you're breaking it down in, a, in just little chunks, bite-sized chunks, baby steps. You're going from short grass to tall grass like you should on everything. But the thing that you, you kept saying connection, it's about that dog making the connection. And so I think a lot of people, they may be listening to this and like, hold up, I'm trying to teach my dog to back. That means that it's supposed to go on point when it sees another dog on point. Why are we trying to make a connection with stop to flush and make it all about the birds? You know, why is it so important? Go ahead and answer that question for the dog to associate that it needs to stop to a flying bird and how I'm assuming you're about to get there, how it translates into a dog on point or a silhouette on point. Perfect. And so, so, for me, and there are two ways to teach backing for me. You know, if you've got a really good low command, but for me, what it is when you have the flushing dog, you know, basically the last step would be introducing a launcher and, and same thing. But where that goes into the backing is I'll take a silhouette dog. And the great thing about silhouette dogs to start the training is you can control the entire environment, where you place it, how you're going to bring the dog in. If you start with another dog in a brace, you can't control the setup. You don't know when the dog's going to go on point, the angle your dog's going to come into. So what I do is I'll place a silhouette dog either in a dip, around a hedgerow, around a you know tree or some brush so I can bring the dog around. And I always have a launcher with a pigeon in it right behind the pointing dog or the, the silhouette dog. So when I'm bringing my dog in for a back, the moment it sees that, you know, silhouette dog, you know, and it's bright, hopefully I'm using white and black, something that pops. Mm -hmm. The moment I see that dog look up and see where that silhouette dog's placed in the field, I launch the bird. And on that launch, your dog should stop. So the only step I didn't get to instead is flush is where you introduce the launcher, you know, after you're throwing birds, where you're letting your dog go. And Mm -hmm. what's happening is when that bird launches, it's singling to your dog to stop. And that's what you're transitioning over to when you have a silhouette. You have your launcher behind it. So when the dog sees it, just that action of the bird coming up piques your dog's curiosity. When it sees that bird, it stops. But then it's associating that with the, the silhouette backing dog, you know, or the pointing dog there. And so your dog then stops naturally, not because it saw the silhouette, because it saw the flushing bird. But through repetition, right, yep. you know, you, if you did a really good job on the steady to flush stuff, you know, or the stop to flush stuff, well, then when you introduce it to the dog that, you know, the silhouette dog, and all of a sudden you launch that bird and it stops, that transition is just easier. Yep. It makes that connection. Now, there are a lot of people, when you say alternative methods, if you've got a really good command of your dog in the low command, a lot of people will just bring it in. There's the backer dog. They'll say, whoa and they'll reward their dog. And, and even in AKC hunt tests at the senior level, you can woe your dog into the back into that test. But for me, what it does is helps with that transition. It makes it a little clear to the dog. You know, everything for me is how do we make this stuff clear to the dog? And so those foundation steps of doing that, you know, yeah. uh, you know, instead, you know, the stop to flush 
helps it is I, I put out a solo. You, you're just you're just building that chain. You're just linking that chain. You you know foundation goes from woe to you know. Uh, stop to flush with the bird they make the connection to the bird now you're having the bird make the connection to the silhouette and the silhouette's eventually going to make a connection to an actual live dog in a situation in the field it's that's what you mean by foundation baby steps building off of it slow and steady oh absolutely you know and and that's why you know for me steady to flush just makes it easier now can you do it without doing the steady yeah. or the stop to flush sorry stop to flush absolutely you can you know if you can give that wolf command and over time, but even when you're, when I use a silhouette, I still want a homing pigeon somewhere behind there in a launcher because I want them to know that silhouette dog was, you know, like on point, you're imitating a point that there was a bird there. So they're making that connection because at some point, right in backing, you're going to launch a bird or shoot a bird or, you know, definitely in the wild situation, that's going to happen. So yeah. all that stuff really leads in, you know, so the whole importance of using a launcher in the steady to, you know, or stop to flush is just to get it to, you know, recognize what it's going to do. It just helps bridge that gap. It's almost like an overlay. You know, when you overlay low to the, to the flush, right. Mm-hmm. You know, you're really doing the same thing without the command really, you know, when that bird flushes, it is the low command. Yeah. And so when it associates that with that dog and then, you know, I do that a bunch where I'll place the backer dog in multiple areas. I control how it comes in. That dog will see that silhouette dog, and then you launch at the moment that happens. And eventually what you start to see, like you obviously see with dogs that, you know, you really train, they start to anticipate it. You know, yep. they see that backer dog, and they start to stop. And that's when you can then, you know, move to yet another another stage. And uh and, and really, you're just teaching that expectation, and it just helps it flow. But, you know, my first dog, I didn't go through it that sequence. It was all through the woke command, and it took longer. It just okay. took longer. And he was an older dog. Um, so with got, my younger dog, it did it quickly. Gotcha. So I got a couple questions on this silhouette, and, and a few people, have, I've heard a few people ask it. I've, I've asked it myself also. Like, when you're dealing with the silhouette, you know, you have the pop-up silhouettes, but it sounds like you just have the silhouette already staked out to where when you're around that table. So you're around the, around the bend, they see it, boom, you you pop the bird, it stops. What it, what do you then do? Do you worry about taking the silhouette down before releasing the dog? Uh, like, what is your release uh, structure like with the dog? Because that silhouette, you know, it's an inanimate object, so it's just going to sit there. So, like, do you have any concern with the dog, like, you know, kind of learning the game? I mean, I guess it's still learning. The silhouette means that. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just seems kind of strange. Like, there's a disconnect. Like, there's a silhouette in the field now. You're releasing the dog, and then it's like, oh, that's not a real dog. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So, so for me, what I tend to do, um, and so that, that's a great question. You know, what's that sequence? So for me, you know, once that dog establishes that point, you know, and the, or, or you've got silhouette and your dog comes in and backs for the, for me, the sequence then is for one, I never let the backing dog ever get up to the silhouette. I, mean, I don't want it smelling it. I don't even want it to realize it's not a real dog. So a lot of times when that dog establishes the back, I'll have sometimes two, two, um, two launchers or I'll have a dead bird in my hand. I literally will go up and pretend I'm petting the pointing dog as odd as that sounds. <laughs> and I'll even say a good boy. 
And then typically what I'll do is at that point, I'll throw a dead bird. And as I'm throwing that dead bird, I knock down the silhouette dog. I actually just Uh take it out, just knock it down. And then basically I tend to every once in a while, let the dog get the retrieve. But typically what I'll do is I'll go back to the backing dog, heal it off about 10 yards and give it water and then get it out of the situation and then get into the next backing situation. But at no point do I want that backing dog to realize that's not a live dog. Now, whether, whether I really think the dog is that dense that it doesn't get it or not, I'm not sure. Um, but I tend to treat that, that, that silhouette dog, like a real dog. I literally go out, pet a good boy. And, and literally when you throw that bird, they don't look at that backing yeah. dog any longer. And really what you're just trying to establish is that initial back. Right. Um, but at that same time, when I throw that bird and it doesn't go and I don't let it get the bird, it's also really honoring in that process, right? Yeah. Even though I've knocked it down, it's showing its steadiness. And, you know, the only thing I'm not introducing, obviously, with a silhouette is the pointing dog getting that bird. Gotcha. Um, and, and to me, you really reward those backs heavily. You know, you know as, as I progress, I'll let the backing dog usually get a retrieve when right. I let them get the retrieves just as a reward or to know that every once in a while it's going to get a retrieve. So that tends to make sure that dog doesn't try to blow those backs or avoid it. So another quick question, when you have the silhouette out there, do you ever, is it always just one launcher and one bird or do you mix it up, add two, maybe three launchers and you have multiple birds to simulate a covey, like really extend that steadiness on the back to, to really push that through. Or is it always just one bird at this stage? No, you know, I, I will throw in more birds. If, if the dog is steady, and again, you know, it's all the foundation of that dog. You know, I mean, if, if the dog's breaking and stuff, then I, I won't. You know, I want to keep it then really simple. But if the dog is demonstrating great, you know, steadiness, I want to watch more. I want to try to see what will tempt that dog. And for me, just because I primarily hunt covey birds, I use, it's like a, you know, I use the Garmin product. So you can actually have, you know, I think up to seven launchers. I only have three, but I will launch three homing pigeons sometimes okay. just to, you know, mimic and pressure the dog a little more because at that point I'm now looking for a couple corrections in there. If I, you know, if I'm really yeah. pushing it, um, but usually on the silhouette dog, they're pretty steady, but I will do cubby flushes and, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, and, and at some point, even on a silhouette, I may shoot a bird, um, you know, but that's rare. Usually I do save that for when we start bracing with another dog. Gotcha. Well, let's go ahead and jump on into that. So when, when do you, do, you, you're drilling the silhouette, you're, you're changing up the visual, you're changing up the color of the silhouette, you're changing up the number of birds. At what point do you say, okay, I'm confident it's ready to move on to real dogs? You know, for me, you know, Again, when you approach a dog, you go in there, you're kicking the grass, you maybe even flush another bird, you know, and your dog has shown that it, it is steady. And, and if you do, you know, fire some shots, the dog is steady, that's when I'm ready to go with a setup dog. And, and what I actually do is I actually move to what I call a setup dog, uh, you know. You know, our chapter is really fortunate. I think we've got a bunch of really good dogs that are running master hunt level. So we have a number of really steady dogs. And what I do is I'll have a buddy or I'll even, if I'm by myself, I'll take my older dog and I'll put it on point on a bird. But I'll control a setting just like a, you know, like, like a silhouette. I'll actually put the dog at an angle. It's a dog that has to be super steady. Once, once you move to using a real dog, 
that dog that is the pointing dog has to be steady to wing shot and fall because you don't want it breaking. You don't want to create any competition. You really want it to mimic the silhouette. So what I do is I'll take that dog and still put it around a hedgerow, put it around a corner or in a dip so that when I'm bringing the dog in that is going to back, it really looks like the same situation as the silhouette. You know, and what I do there is the moment they're steady, that's when I move them to using a real dog. But even the real dog piece, then I treat it really just like the silhouette. You know, I'll bring the dog in. He'll, he'll recognize that dog on point. Usually I start where he's going to come in. So it's just a broadside picture of that dog. As I progress and the dog's making that connection. And, and a lot of times with the real dog, you may have to go back a little bit. As it sees the dog, you may have to over, you know, do a woe first. You know, get the dog to stop and acknowledge it to make sure he's transitioning. And, you know, real dogs, a lot of times you don't get to control the cover, color, right? You don't get to probably spray paint a brown poodle point or white <laughs> so it pops, right? Yeah. So, you know, again, when you bring it in, you overlay the well. And, and that usually comes pretty quick. And if you've, again, done your foundation with the silhouette, usually just one or two woe commands prior to on a, on a dog, a live dog, that dog picks up the the game pretty quickly. And I never try to overdo, you know, setups. I maybe do two to three in a training session. So you're not burning them out. You know, dogs yeah. don't naturally love to back. They want to point and get the bird. So I do keep it pretty short at that phase of maybe two to two to three, you know, backs. And they're really canned. And as the dog's getting it, then we'll bring the dog in on different angles on that backing dog. Maybe from the have where the you know I have that the point or sorry on the pointing dog on may turn the pointing dog where he's going to come in and the dog's really facing the dog or he's coming in from behind the dog. So how I set up that, that live dog and it has to be steady um, is kind of critical. And what you want to do is give that dog many pictures of just a dog standing there. They're going to stop. And even, you know, even when I do that, I use a launcher sometimes If that dog isn't going to stop. I launch that bird. And again, they're going to be steady to that bird launching right. with that dog there. And so again, I go back to that launcher and steady to flush when that dog's coming in on the first couple, you know, you overlay the back to the foundation that you established. And I just thought of another question that I probably should have asked even at the silhouette level when you're flushing the bird, are you, are you firing a cap gun or, or a primer load or are you shooting it? What, what's the, are you doing it to shot? Like where, where does that fall into place here? So for me, at first, I don't add the shot. Once the dog is really recognizing whether it's on the silhouette or whether it's on the live dog, you know, I'll introduce the shot after they're really demonstrating the backing. You know, I really want to make sure whether it's a silhouette or on a live dog that is pointing to bird, that when you flush, at first, I don't want to add the added tension. I want to make sure I'm building that foundation. And once I feel that that dog is stopping, then I'll introduce just a, you know, a primer shot out of a pistol. And then at this point, when that, when that dog is actually backing a live dog at the end of, you know, I, I believe in a lot of flyaways, you know, I, I believe in that even for steadiness training, I, I like to start with flyaways. So on this kind of training, I'll start with a, a flyaway first, you know, once it's, you know, showing that, and then what I'll do is I'll, you know, fire a blank, let it fly away on the second one. And then, you know, on that third one, I may actually shoot that bird. And if it did a really nice bag, I may reward it with the retrieve on that and let the, you know, the pointing dog not get that retrieve. Um, so that's kind of a real basic sequence to that. 
Gotcha. So are you changing the ratio up at all on the retrieve and shot so that the backing dog doesn't always anticipate, like you said earlier, they learn to start anticipating this stuff. They don't anticipate the retrieve because you need them to remain steady all the way through the other dog retrieving also. So where do you, when do you start working on that to where they're, they're honoring the retrieve at that point after backing the point? You know, so really, um, I start once they're really demonstrating, you know, I'll give them a couple rewards on that, uh, on that shot bird first, you know, on the back. And then somewhere shortly thereafter, I will then start working on releasing the pointing dog to get the retrieve. Um, and, and that's the one stage that is really hard to do by yourself. You know, I have two dogs that makes it a little easier. Most people maybe don't have two dogs that they have a buddy there. But obviously at that point, I always want to make sure I'm on my dog can be there for a correction. So I do want someone else shooting that bird. And then usually they're going to control their dog, which is the pointing dog and send it on a retrieve. But I'm, you know, when I'm training, I rarely take my dog, my eyes off my dog. I'm really focused on the dog. I don't really watch the bird or the, you know, whether it falls or if they miss it. So really once they've demonstrated, you know, they're steady to, you know, the flyaways with a shot, then at that point, you know, and they've got a couple of trees under their belt, then what I'll do is start working on that honoring component of it, letting that other dog get in there. But the initial part is working on the back, you know, once they can really stab that back on the setup dog, then, you know, then, you know, you're really making good progress and they'll probably honor, you know, and adding that other dog does really, and sometimes you have to get a little closer. So usually the first time I'll let that other dog, um, you know, the pointing dog, get the retrieve, I'll get right up to my backing dog so I can be there for a correction. And sometimes I just run it with a woe strap on it. So it's a real gentle correction. I really try not to use electricity around the, the backing stage, but that's a preference that I have. You know, some people might give a little nick on it if the dog becomes a little unsteady during that honoring phase. I tend to try to keep that out of there so it really keeps the backing experience as positive as possible. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I have to ask kind of a side random question because we were just talking about the, the pointing dog versus backing dog getting the retrieve. When you're actually hunting, do you adhere by the old set rule that the the dog that finds a bird and points the bird gets the retrieve or do you mix it up with your dogs when you're actually out there in the hunting field? I'm a sturdy built mouse. So whatever dog's closest is the dog that I'm going to send to get that retrieve. And if it's, you know, for some reason, if it's a backing dog, I do try to mix it up if I can, but I don't want, you know, when I shoot a bird in a wild setting, I want the dogs to get on that bird quickly. So I really try to get to whatever dog's the closest for that. I like mixing it up because I don't want dogs anticipating, you know, going. And so for me, even in my, you know, even when I work in the field, I probably only let my dogs, you know, outside of the backing station, just retrieves. I maybe let them get one out of 10 birds. Um, to me, I want them to enjoy pointing and the same thing. I want them to enjoy backing. I don't want them to anticipate the retrieve. And it, to me, it just increases the likelihood. If you don't let them get it, you know, if you mix it up, they just don't know what dogs do in training. I always mix it up. It's 50, 50, but on wild birds, it really is whatever dog's closest, but it mixes it up. And usually it's the pointing dog because that's usually the dog that's closest to me. Cause usually it's me you know, getting in front of the dog that flushes the birds. Chuckers don't always hold. So sometimes you're still behind the dog, but you know, 
then it's easier to send it. Yeah, for sure. So, so sorry for that tangent, but it, it got me thinking. I was curious. So back to the training, you know, is there anything else or do you just continue on, you know, is there anything else that we're missing for you to kind of wrap this up, put the bow on it and, and close the door? What, what, what else are you doing to, to really say, okay, this dog, it backs. Well, for me, the next phase is actually where you brace them. And that's really ah. two dogs. Once they've got it on that, you know, that setup dog, that's when I then move to two dogs braced. And there you really do want two people. You want two handlers because you're really going to send them if you, you know, I don't know if you've dabbled in field trials or hunt tests or NASTRA, but, you know, you're sending those, those dogs together. And at that point, I do tend to start where the dogs are placed you know, really close by, or the birds are placed really close. Cause I'm at that point, I'm not really working on hunting. I'm really working on teaching backing. So yeah. I want multiple little backing situations. So I'll, I'll set, you know, if I get in the field where, you know, I can get in the middle field, I may set up the back or, you know, a, a bird on the right and a bird on the left, and they're really not that far apart. And I'll bring them in, you know, naturally I try to start where the dog or where I'm planting the birds are pretty close so we can control it a little more. We try to get the pointing dog out in front. Sometimes we'll let that pointing dog go in first. And so it's just a little further out there. And then when that dog establishes point again, you kind of go back again. You know, if they're running in a brace, they're a little more competitive now. So you really got to watch your dog. And when you see your dog, see that dog on point, I tend to want to start with an overlaying a low again. And not that it's not going to, it almost should with all the, you know, if you've done your reps well, it should stop. But I don't want to risk it on those first that first maybe brace or three braces, we're all still say the low command first, just to make sure it's making that connection. And then basically I'll start fading that once it starts getting the picture of this is really the same thing as the setup dog, the silhouette dog, that when I see that I'm going to stop. And the thing with a live dog, you just never know when that pointing dog, what angle it's going to be, you know, is, is your, is the backing dog dog going to get a really good view of that um, dog. And when they're in a brace and running, you know, they're focused on hunting themselves. So that's that next stage that, that really wraps that up is getting those dogs in a brace. And then eventually I start placing the birds further and further out. And, you know, you want to be able to, you know, a, a wise guy wants to only trust your training. So as you place those birds out, a lot of times my dogs will be out there, you know, 350 yards. And when that first dog goes on point, that backing dog has to stab it back. And we, we hunt out here in pretty big open country. So a lot of times those backs can be, you know, hundred yards plus, you know, usually they're a little shorter, but you know, because they're hunting themselves, they're focused on their hunt, but mm -hmm. that's where I transition to the brace. And that really ties it up as far as where they're at. And if you go through those, you know, that process, usually it, it is actually pretty quick yeah. um, because you've built those connections. You've gone back, you've taken your time, you set your foundation makes a hundred percent sense so all right you just said that you're that pretty much wraps it up for you but is there any point when you're getting getting close to being done that you make a concerted effort to really test the training so and what i mean by that is mixing it up on breed size color softness on point you know instead of picking a, a really hard pointer maybe you find one that flags a little bit a little loosey-goosey on the on the point and conversely also an unsteady unproven dog to where you they, they'll establish point but you want you want that dog who's been trained on the back with a very steady dog let's see what it does when you get a very unsteady dog do you do you go through that to to really kind of 
put a bow on it and get it ready for these invitational tests and these high level tests? Oh, absolutely. You know, for me, you know, that's, you know, when I go back to the silhouette dodge, right. You know, I talked about painting them different colors. Yep. Once you get to that bracing phase, you know, you want to brace them with all different kinds of breeds, you know, um, you know, I have poodle pointers and, and it is, it's always been kind of the big thing that poodle pointers shouldn't run AKC. But what AKC hunt tests allow you to do is you get to run them with Britneys, Weimreiners, Vishlas, Weiners, Griffs, Bononis. And so what you get are different size dogs, color dogs. So what you are doing is you're mixing up. And, and a lot of times, once a dog is really showing their steady, really showing they nail their backs, you do want to introduce a dog that's not steady because you still want it to honor, you know, um, you know, for me, many times in a master hunt test where, you know, you know, my dog's honoring and, and the dog that is really the pointing dog, just isn't steady and it's going to break. Well, if my dog breaks with that dog, you know, I'm going to also get that, you know, walk of shame where they're going to say, you know, handle or leash up your dog. And I don't like that walk. You know, I'm a fat man. I'd rather stay out there a little bit longer and walk slowly. Um, but, you know, basically I, I, I do, I want to get young dogs out there. I want my dogs to really be steady to any situation. And, and I'll even mix in wild flushes. You know, a lot of times as I'm polishing that, I want to make sure, you know, when I run my two dogs together, I'll, I'll pitch out a pigeon every once in a while to make sure they're stopping to it. You know, I will always want to test where a dog's at. And when you have a really good dog and you really want to see where it's at, running with the dog that's going to bump a bird or break is always a good thing to really, you know, sometimes your dog's going to break and it just allows you the chance to get the correction to teach them, no, it still needs to be steady. And I always look at when a dog makes a little mistake like that, because it's a new situation, it's just a really good opportunity for you to get a correction and teach that dog what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, even in hunt tests, I do hunt tests not to get the ribbon. I do it so I can test where my dog's at in that progression and training. You know, what are the holes in my training? You know, if I'm in a hunt test and it, you know, it's with an unsteady dog, my dog does take steps because that dog broke. It tells me I've got to go back and work on that because definitely in the invitational, that'll hit you in master hunt tests. It'll hit you in in field trials. It won't ding you as much in Astra, but it's still something you don't want to see. Um, So for me, yeah, I tested, you know, with some younger dogs and a lot of times, you know, I'll use my dogs for, you know, dogs that are learning to back. So, you know, at some point you want your dogs to be around a dog that may actually, you know, that back, but then doesn't honor and goes in because now when you're pointing dog, you get to use some reps on steadiness too. Yeah. So you're, you know, you want to put them in all sorts of situations because wild bird hunting, you know, think of how many crazy situations you've probably been in with dogs and wild birds. And that's what you're really preparing them for. You know, I'm ultimately a hunter. I enjoy playing these games with my dogs. But ultimately, what I want to do is get out in the field with all my buddies from that I train with, and now done. Get out there and run dogs, and you know, sit there and smile when I see a dog nail them back. I don't care whose dog it is. There's just nothing better when you're out there working with a buddy that you put time in their dog. They put time in your dog, and you get out there and you see them nail a back, and then you go up and shoot a bird, and they just stand it down. You just, you know, that just wraps it up for you. You know, just nothing better. Absolutely. I mean. You just said it perfectly. Before we kind of wrap this up, is there any other common hurdles or challenges that you think it's common enough that we should discuss? Uh, You know, I have a feeling that everything's going to go back to the foundation work, you know, the the importance Mm -hmm. of foundation, and and that's going to be the resolution. But is there anything that kind of you see pop up 
more often than not? Yeah, you know, one thing, and it's something that's really more on the people that are there. You know, I tend to, when I'm training at some point, usually when we're running embraces, I want people to walk out in the field, right? I want to mimic a test where there's three or four people. Well, a lot of times, you know, what I want to make sure from a testing situation is my dog's backing. What happens a lot of times, if you have a dog on point, what does their handler do or the judge that's with that person? They stop, right? So a lot of times what you want to be real careful about in your train is make sure that those people don't stop because what they might start to do is actually point the situation of two people standing and maybe yes. not the dog. And that's just, you know, I'd call that situational backing, right? It's, they're really not doing a back. They're just seeing people stand there and they're backing the situation. So I think that's always something to kind of be aware of. And, and it's hard because you don't get to control when people are stopping, right? You know, you might you know, look at your training partner and say, Hey, keep walking. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you don't want them to point situations. Um, and I think the other thing too is, you know, we all love our dogs and we think they always are perfect, but a lot of times, and this goes back to when you're teaching back and maybe with an older dog and let's say your dog comes in and you're not sure if the dog saw that dog on point. And so it, it maybe turns, but you're just not sure. I always lay the well. I never give credit to my dog. I always think if it might've thought I do no harm by doing a woe and I'm not going to give my dog credit. I'm going to say he blew that back because I think if the dog did see it and you give it credit and say, man, I don't think he saw it. And then all of a sudden you realize that dog isn't going to come anywhere by that pointing dog. You just <laughs> missed the opportunity for the learning. So I think it's pretty critical to really watch your dog and don't give it credit. And what I mean is if you think it might have thought or it had the opportunity, you're always better off lowing your dog because when you walk up to that pointing dog, it realizes the situation yes. and you do no harm. Yep. But you do probably take a couple steps back if you allow the dog and then you realize, shit, it saw it, right? It, oh, sorry, <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. But anyway, he, he saw it and, and, and now you might have to work through that again. So. You know, and the other thing, make sure you, you move dogs to different, or the, the pointing dog or even the silhouettes to multiple situations because I'm sure you've even seen it where you take a young dog out, it goes on point, you, you know, in a certain situation on a bird, and the next day you bring it back and it goes on point and there's no bird there, but it's yeah. in the same situation. It oh, took yeah. that mental picture. So again, you, you do want to make sure that you're moving your silhouettes around, you know, and a lot of times, you know, people who live in a city may only have one small field to train in. So there might be only one or two good spots to hide a silhouette, but you do want to try or even do the backing, but you want to make sure you're trying to mix up those locations so they're not getting site specific. You know, they're really learning to back. Yeah. No, I love it. You so, know, and go ahead. Oh, and then I say, just watch your dog, watch your dog. You know, I, I think so often when people are training, they're, they're not watching their dog. And, and I think timing's everything. And I think setting up is, 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 Critical. And I guess the one thing I also didn't mention is usually when you're doing this, you always want to come in where when you have your traps or your launchers of the bird that you're coming upwind because you don't want it to be a point. You know, if, if, if you have three birds out, that scent may travel. And so you always want to go upwind, not downwind. So when you're yeah. doing these activities, you really want to come upwind so you're sure that it's not a, a scent point. You really do want it to be the sight point on the pointing dog. Great stuff. Great stuff. So, all right. I need to talk about the alternatives. Like I mentioned it earlier. So 
when somebody's going down this training, you know, this is this can kind of be summed up on on everything from steadiness and, and everything that you're training. But let's talk about how often you're doing this, because like I said earlier, not everybody has homing pigeons, not everybody has launchers, and not everybody lives in a situation to where they can get to this every day. So what is some backyard stuff and drills that they can do during the week in their own backyard with you know some common stuff that they may have, and then they can get on the weekends and weekend warrior it up at an AVDA training day or, or a, a buddy's training field or so on and so forth to where maybe they can get to those resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and again, you know, homing pigeons and the whole stop to flush helps right in the sequence. But there are a lot of people that, like you said, they live maybe, you know, in a city and they can't have birds, right? So a lot of times where you set up, you still want a silhouette. You still are going to need some dog that either you either have a dog on point or you have a silhouette. And that's where if you have a really good low command, you can do all of that even without the birds, right? You know, you can still set up a silhouette, bring the dog in, and the moment it should see it, you can say, well, and all you're doing is minusing the bird. So the bird now isn't the low command. You're actually giving the low command, and they're going to make the connection over time. And then typically what I'll still try to do is I'll still go up to that silhouette, and then usually I'll have a frozen bird. And this is how I had to do it with my other dog. I'll throw a frozen bird. And I tend to want to use white pigeons with that because they really pop. Um, And if the dog, if the backing dog's steady, there's nothing, you know, we all love, I'm a gadget guy. I love gadgets. So, (laughs) you know, I have these little weights, you know, I I took a, a, you know, a a salmon kind of, you know, lead weight. And I put pretty much a little, you know, uh, tie on it that goes on the pigeon's feet. So even if I have one pigeon, I can at least still throw a pigeon or a quail. And as long as that backing dog is steady and doesn't go in, you still create that flushing experience, right? You can throw that bird and it still creates that experience. You know, it is always going to take birds to create a bird dog. But if you don't have, you know, 50 or, you know, really, you probably only need a handful of homing pigeons. But if you don't have access to those, just having one or two birds they have on a little tether with a weight on it. Um, is a good way to still replicate that, but you're overlaying them with the woe command. And you don't need the launchers. And sometimes you just have another person, even in your yard, you know, when you're teaching, you, 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 you know, as long as, again, you have a good foundation, your dog steady, you know, you, you throw up one pigeon with just a weight on it, it's always going to come down. And, you know, that's the way, you know, that's an alternative to having a launcher. You're always probably going to need a bird, whether it's dead or alive but you're still just building that connection. But at some point you're always going to have to get some live birds. Yep. Um, Perfect. No, I mean, it, it makes sense, but that gives people something that they can start doing in their own backyard. And that's what we're all about is, you know, yeah, anybody can go out there. It'd be great to have all that, that equipment, but you know, we got to make do with what we have and uh, yeah, you know, get out there in your backyard and start doing it. It's no excuse that, uh, Oh, well, I don't have this. Well, you know, you can, you can go out there and do something, but Daryl, is there anything else that we're missing in this whole process? Is there anything that you would like to touch on, throw out there, plug on your end, you know, anything at all? You know, I think any person that goes through the process of teaching their dog at the back, um, it's a great process to go through. And I think what you'll see is it's the same thing with studying this training. You know, I'm, I, I really do want my dogs to be steady to wing shot and fall even on wild birds. And once you start the process, A, I think it goes by really quickly as long as you've done your foundation. 
you know, to, you know, if you can go out and practice it in, in you know, by going to hunt tests, you know, and I, I think, you know, hunt tests, field trials, all these games are fun. And now that unfortunately it doesn't come until the invitational. I kind of wish they introduced it earlier because I do think sometimes, you know, uh, I look at some of our NAVDA folks are just NAVDA folks. That's, you know, that's the core. Well, they started a little bit too late and we touched on that, but I think, you know, get your dogs back in as early as you can, but it's never too late either, you know, but it really is worthwhile and it does allow you to hunt with your buddies. And, you know, I think one of the things, you know, whatever you do, it's usually a good community of bird dog trainers and that community is really great. And you know, I look at most of my hunting partners are now people I've met through NAVDA and, you know, you want to run with their dogs. So I think it's just a really worthwhile thing to, you know, focus on and start as early as you can. Yes, absolutely. I agree. Daryl, I want to thank you for coming on, taking the time to share your knowledge and experience with us. It, it, this is a topic that I've been wanting to, to cover for quite a while, really, since we started on this. Uh, we're definitely going to have to have you back on to cover some other topics. And uh, But once again, thanks for your time and, and sharing your experience. That was wonderful. And thank you very much for having me on. And, uh, you know, I hope, hope it helps out some folks. Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gundog It Yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup just after replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.